Okay, what a blessed time of worship, and I couldn't agree more. What a perfect scripture reading this morning. Ella, you just crushed it. You hit it right out of the park with that, so thank you for that. Um, so kids, if there's any other kids in here, I see a few of them, you guys are dismissed for children's ministry. Uh, youth group, so junior high and high school, you guys are in with us this morning, and it's not a bad week for you to be in with us this morning, especially for the young men in the youth group, and you'll see why as we, uh, as we get there. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, and so you can turn there as we're getting started. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that you can borrow. Just raise your hands, and one of the guys will get you a Bible. You're welcome to use a Bible on your phone or whatever you, uh, you want to do. And I hope that you guys have been as blessed as I have been as we've been studying through this first letter of uh, Peter, uh, I think there's so much in there for us, especially with what we're dealing with today, and I think we're going to find that that uh, continues this morning. If you read ahead, well, I think a lot of people did read ahead and they're not here this morning. So if you read ahead, you know that we're in for a, a challenging text, and yet it's a, such an important text. Um, so let's pray and just ask that the Lord would really bless our time in his word this morning. Uh, and as we pray every week, that he would be the one really to teach us uh, the scriptures. So, Father, we thank you so much for today. We do thank you for the youth, Lord, and just for the way that they bless us with their different gifts. Lord, from leading us in, the, in worship, Lord, to just touching our hearts through your word. And so we pray your blessing on them today, Lord. We, uh, we pray your blessing on the youth as they sit in with us. And most of all, Lord, we just pray that you would bless us through your word, Lord, that uh, again, that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest, Lord. We pray for open hearts, open ears, Lord, open minds, uh, Lord, that your spirit would really speak to us today. And so we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 3, and we know, as we've seen so far, the Apostle Peter, right, known as the Apostle of Hope, is writing this letter specifically to give hope to a group of new Christians in new churches who were experiencing all kinds of trials and struggles that came along with their new faith. And history tells us, and we believe that the Holy Spirit had told Peter in advance of it, that just after this letter was written, that these very same new believers would have a whole new set of problems on their hands, as we're about to see this new wave historically of intense persecution against the Christian church as it swept across the Roman Empire. We saw in chapter 1, Peter wrote to encourage these believers that they could, even in the midst of these trials, that they could live lives of hope and of holiness, and that they could live lives of harmony with one another. And then we saw in chapter 2, just last week, that Peter used a, a number of different word pictures to give us some really striking images of what our lives as believers look like. You know, illustrating for us, first of all, all of those heavenly 
realities that are ours, right? We're babes feeding on the word and stones in the temple, priests at the altar. We're this chosen generation, a purchased people, a holy nation, right? The, the people of God, we're going to have that on our, our t-shirts, right? We're strangers, we're pilgrims, we're disciples that are following after the example of the Lord. And finally, he said that we're sheep under the care of the good shepherd. And then as a result, remember, of all of those heavenly realities, Peter kind of pivoted to share with us what are our earthly responsibilities in light of that. And we saw him highlight in our text last week that in order to live lives that are a good witness and a good testimony before the world, that we need to live lives that are above reproach. Live lives that are above reproach so that we could silence all of the criticisms that might come against us, right? Living as model citizens, if you will, of any nation submitted to the governing authorities for the sake of the Lord, right? Submitted to our masters, right? Or to our employers just as unto the Lord. And now this morning, Peter's going to continue with this very popular subject of submission, but he's really going to help us, I think, understand the blessings of submission and how really it's our submission in our lives that really helps to produce that peace for our lives. And Peter's going to show us as Christians, we need to be equally submitted in three more areas of our life. And I promise you that one of those areas is not at all what you think. That was kind of like clickbait, right? Number seven is going to blow your mind, right? So the first of those that we're to be submitted in is in our homes. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that in the middle of this letter in which the word suffering appears 16 different times and where submission is a primary theme, that Peter now is going to address the subject of marriage. Now, that was not really meant to be a joke, although maybe it... It was, but there's some truth in that because in the days of difficulty, a marriage is either going to grow stronger or it's going to collapse completely under that added strain and the pressure that's come upon it. So it's very fitting that Peter's going to focus in for us on Christian marriage within that kind of overarching theme of our submission as believers. Now, I can already see at just two minutes into this that some of you are checking out already because you're saying, well, I'm not even married, right? So how does this apply to me? And yet stay with me because I think we're going to find that Peter's points aren't just for the married here within the group, but really that they apply to all of us as followers of Jesus. And in a sense, we're going to see that what Peter does is he uses the marriage relationship almost as kind of an opening case study in order to really highlight the importance of our submission as Christians in every situation, and especially those that are especially difficult. And so he says here in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, likewise... You wives, be, submit, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So Peter paints this picture here for us of a wife who's married to a husband 
who is not serving the Lord, right? Either because he's not yet a believer or perhaps because he is a professing believer, but he's living in disobedience. And in either one of these situations, the Christian wife is in a difficult situation because she's called as a follower of Jesus to be submitted to him. Now, in the worldly culture, this is an increasingly unpopular principle. And yet the Bible teaches very clearly that God has given to the man the place of headship in two very specific spheres within our society, and that's within the church and within the home. And his will in the home is that the woman should acknowledge the authority of the man. Because this relationship between a husband and a wife is really a picture of that relationship between Christ and the church. And in the very same way that a woman should obey her husband is the same way that the church should be obedient to Christ. Now, of course, disclaimer here, submission in an earthly marriage follows all of those same principles as our submission in other earthly spheres, right? We submit to God's appointed authority, right, as our obligation to him, unless that authority directs us directly to do something that is sinful. And in that case, it is right to obey God rather than to obey man. Now, I've opened up a bit of a can of worms here. I know that we could spend a month of Sundays talking about the whys and the hows and all the nuances and the complexities, but this morning, in the context, this isn't really a text supremely about God's order. It's not even really a text about marriage. It's a text about the blessings and the importance of submission. So we're just going to focus on what it is that Peter says here to a woman who's called to submit to a man who himself isn't submitted to the Lord. <clears throat> and notice that he ties it back to the previous examples that he's just given us. That first word in the first verse is what? It's likewise. Because the pattern of proper submission in the home follows that very same principle of submission precisely as he already said exists toward the government or toward our employers, right? A submission not only of our actions, but also a submission of our hearts. And you remember he closed out the last chapter using the example of Jesus and his willing submission to the Father. And now he's sort of dovetailing off of that. Notice he says that it's this very same kind of submission of the heart that will ultimately bring that unbelieving or disobedient husband back to faith or to faith in Jesus. Peter says that the wife can win the husband without a word, just through her character. And you're sitting there thinking, do you mean to tell me that a husband could be won to Christ without even talking? I don't believe it. Well, believe it, because Peter says it, right? God made men, and he knows how we are wired. And so often what happens in a situation like this is you have this wife who knows the Lord, she loves her husband, she loves the Lord, and she wants more than anything for him to know the Lord. And she is going to try and win him with her mouth rather than with her life. 
And so what happens is that every conversation, right, he can talk about any issue under the sun and somehow she's going to bring it right back to the cross, right? She's going to reshare the gospel with him at every turn and every opportunity and she's ending up preaching to him and pounding on him all the time. And of course, we understand the kind of the desperation of it and there absolutely is a place for sharing verbally, but for the most part... Men simply are not won by words. And yet God knows how he's made men. God knows that we are horrible creatures. Right? We are horrible, horrible, fallen creatures. And yet God also knows how to get through to a man. And so he speaks to a wife in this situation and tells her that the best way to win her husband to the Lord is for him to be able to watch her continue, first of all, to respect his position as the head of the household and of his authority over the household. And then number two, for him to be able to watch her live a holy life in front of him, right? A Christ-like, obedient life. And those two things can be so very powerful in moving the heart of a man because they notice more than sometimes women give them credit. And of course, there's an application here for all of us as believers, because our unsaved loved ones, right, whether it's a spouse or other family member or even friends, they watch our lives. And as we point to Christ through our character, we really can win them without a word. Because what happens when we do that is that their attention ultimately isn't drawn to our outward behavior as they're kind of distracted by our constant sermonizing, but instead their attention is drawn to that inner person as they're attracted by the life of Jesus that they see in us. Peter goes on next to say, do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging of the hair or wearing of gold or of putting on fine apparel. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So what's important to God and ultimately what's truly attractive to those around us, it's the life of Christ that they see evident in us. And so the real question, if you will, that Peter's asking specifically to a wife, but I think generally to all of us, is what do you depend on to make yourself beautiful? And Peter's point, of course, isn't that any of these things are forbidden, whether it's hair or makeup or clothing or jewelry, but simply that they shouldn't be a woman's adornment, right? It shouldn't be the source of her beauty. And what I think is especially interesting is that the Greek word translated adorning here is the word cosmos. And it actually means, you know, an ordered universe. So it's the opposite of chaos. It's to put things out of chaos and put things into their proper place. Cosmos is actually where we get our word cosmetic. And of course, that's what cosmetics are for, right? They turn chaos into some kind of a reasonable order. 
Ladies, anybody? Even a groan? Wow, it's a tough crowd this morning. I thought with the extra sleep maybe, right? I'm simply defining some terms here from the Greek, right? And yet I think that the picture that it paints for us is so important because here Peter's talking about the importance of an order not of our outward appearance, but that order that we need to have of our inner person. He says, don't make your clothes or your jewelry or the way that you fix your hair, don't make that the center of your universe. Don't make that your top priority, he says, because if you do, you're really missing out on God's highest for you and you are neglecting or even obscuring what it is that will really draw others into a relationship with Jesus. He says it there in verse 4. It's that hidden person of the heart and specifically what? A gentle and a quiet spirit. Now these are a couple of character traits that are not necessarily promoted for women by our culture. And yet Peter says that they are very precious in the sight of God. Right, That gentle and that quiet spirit that a Christian wife can bring into that marriage. And Peter says that that's an incorruptible beauty. In other words, all of those other outward kinds of beauties, what? They're corruptible. He says, but this kind of beauty, this inward beauty of a Christian wife, it never gets old, it doesn't age, it doesn't go gray, it doesn't wrinkle, it just becomes more and more beautiful because she's becoming more and more like Jesus. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he talked about the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And that word meek there specifically means strength under control. And it comes from the idea of a, a powerful stallion, right? A horse that's brought into submission. And so a meek and a gentle person, despite what the world would tell us, a meek person is not a weak person, but it's a person who's strong and who's center and who's grounded, one who knows what he or she is all about. They have a godly perspective on their life. And so it's no wonder that, that Peter says that a gentle and quiet spirit never goes sort of out of style with the Lord. Right? Certainly it isn't always fashionable in our culture, right? In our culture, what are we enamored with? We're enamored with self-made men, right? We're enamored with strong women, people who know what they want and they can go out and they kind of make it happen and they just make their own dreams come true. And yet, in God's economy, our world is absolutely backwards. And it's only from the perspective of heaven that we see the reality as God sees it. And that is that many of those who appear today, maybe on the cover of, you know, Vogue or GQ or Fortune or Forbes, right? They appear as the giants of our culture today, but in eternity, they're going to actually be insignificant and possibly even absent altogether. While many of those who today are thought of as unimportant or insignificant, they're going to be beautiful in heaven because of their inner beauty. Let me assure you that for the next billion years, no one is going to care about your hair or about your physique or about your wardrobe or even about your great tan, right? All they're going to care about 
is whether or not you cultivated that gentle and that quiet spirit right here and now. They're going to care about whether or not you were like the Lord here on earth. And one main quality, right, a key quality of that gentle and quiet spirit is a submitted spirit. And it's this very same spirit Peter points out next, which we see was lived out in the lives of some of the great women of faith who had come before. In verses 5 and 6, he says that in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So here, fisherman Peter, right? Again, he reaches back into the pages of the Old Testament and he singles out Sarah really as the model of a submitted woman. Sarah, one who adorned herself with this kind of true inner beauty. Now we know that Sarah was a beautiful woman outwardly. And we know it because several kings tried to take her for themselves from her husband. So Sarah absolutely could have kind of had it all if she'd wanted to grab for it. And yet we see that she was devoted first to the Lord and then to her husband in the Lord. Genesis 18, it tells us that she even referred to Abraham as my Lord. Now, we're still working on that at our house, but we're... We're not working on that at my house, I promise. Ironically, of course, today's the day that, that my wife, Michelle, is not here. There's not a message there, I promise you. Sarah was not a servant in her house, right? But she's just expressing her submission to her husband based on her love, both for him and for the Lord. Through all of those ups and downs of their marriage. And we all know that Abraham did some pretty dumb things. Abraham made some pretty dumb decisions, right? Genesis 12, let's move to Egypt, right? Genesis also 12, she's my sister, right? Then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 20, he says to Abimelech again, she's my sister, right? And yet, what do we see through their whole story? We see that the Lord covered Sarah in the middle of all of that, and he protected Sarah through it because she always respected Abraham's position as the head of the household. So when a Christian wife is devoted to the Lord and to her husband, she doesn't need ever to fear what might happen because God is going to rule and he is going to even overrule in her life. So ladies, don't worry about what is going to happen to you when your husband makes a boneheaded Abraham-like decision for your family. Because God will honor you as you honor him by honoring your husband. I assure you, when I lead my family, not if, but when I lead my family in the wrong direction, God will always deal with me directly. And yet because Michelle travels along with me and she's right there and supports me, God protects her and he enriches our family through her partnership because that's his ordained plan for marriage. I will say this. There are no words which should strike terror into the heart of a Christian husband than when his submitted wife says to him, okay, honey, If you've prayed about it, 
then that's what we'll do. And that's the point where we say, uh, 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 okay, let's not rush into it, right? Let's just wait on the Lord a little while longer. And lo and behold, what happens? I'll just let you fill in the rest of the story there, right? Here's the long and short of it. Wives, be like Sarah, right? Honor the Lord by honoring your husband and then just watch the way that the Lord blesses your life abundantly. And then he says in verse seven, likewise, you husbands dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, now we're in the deep waters, okay? This last verse of the first section, Peter pivots here and he addresses the men. Now, I do think this is especially interesting because of the seven verses dealing with marriage. Peter spent six of them addressing the women and only one of them addressing of the men. And I think that there's actually a reason for that. First of all, I think women are given the greater amount of encouragement here because living with a man can be much more difficult, first of all. And secondly, I believe also, Peter knows he needs to keep it as simple as he possibly can for us husbands. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Here's what you need to know. In the context of this, just this one verse during this time in the first century, this would have been a radical teaching. Because in that ancient culture, the husband had absolute rights over his wife and he had absolutely no responsibilities towards his wife. All the duties, all the obligations in a marriage were put on the wife. And yet Peter's radical teaching begins with this premise that the husband also has God-ordained duties and obligations toward his wife. Notice that Peter starts this section again with the word likewise to indicate that just as the wife is called to be submissive to and to respect her husband, a, a similar attitude of love and of respect and of mutual submission, if you will, is also required of him. In fact, we notice it's just one more link in the chain of our call to be submitted. Right? All of us are be, to be submitted to the governing authorities. Workers are to be submitted to their employers. Wives to their husbands. And likewise, the husbands, we're to be submitted to our responsibilities to our wives. Peter says specifically, giving honor to her and dwelling with her with understanding. Now that word understanding there, right, it's the knowledge that comes from studying or literally from investigating. And it has the idea of being like a detective, right? I should know and I should study all about my wife, right? What she likes, what she doesn't like, the things that minister to her, the things that push her buttons. And then I need to live in such a way that I am constantly keeping those things at the forefront of my mind. 
that I'm understanding, I'm being considerate of my wife's spiritual, emotional, physical needs because they are so often not at all like mine because she is built differently than I am. Right? I need to seek to live in a way that I'm submitting my wants to hers and that I am just understanding where it is that she is coming from, or at least I am trying to do that. Now, men, there is help for us. Okay, a brand new book that has just come out. I found an ad for it right now. Apparently, this is volume one, but it's a subscription kind of a thing where each month they'll just send you the next volume. Okay, I, I don't actually think that any husband can truly ever understand his wife, but men, we need to become expert students of them, like PhD doctorate level students of our wives, right? Marriage is a partnership, and a husband cannot remain ignorant the way that he is at the beginning but a husband needs to be growing constantly in his knowledge of his wife, which admittedly can be difficult because she was designed differently than he was. Peter uses the description here specifically that the wives are the weaker vessel. Now that word weaker literally carries the sense of delicate, right? So maybe there is a, a physical or even an emotional kind of a weakness, but it doesn't speak at all of any kind of an intellectual inferiority, but simply more delicate by design. The best way to think of it, I think, is to think of a, you know, you have this root beer mug and you have a champagne flute, right, or a wine glass, right? One of them strong, unbreakable, not much to look at, right? The other one finely crafted, maybe more easily shattered, but certainly more beautifully you know, catching the light. Both of them are just as functional. Both of them are just as valuable for their specific purpose, right? Whether you're trying to slurp down soda or sip, you know, sparkling cider, both of them are just as honorable. They're just as necessary. So we as husbands, we shouldn't get frustrated with the differences in our wives, but Peter says we need to give honor to her specifically because we are heirs together of the grace of life. We have this common salvation, right? Both of us have received it from the Lord, and we're on equal footing before the Lord. Men, can I say this? There is, I mean, much more than any success in ministry or professional advancement or material wealth, God wants us to experience the joy of really seeing our wives as joint heirs of grace. And in order for that to happen, there are times when he needs to stop us in our tracks when our priorities get out of order. So guys, if you notice there's a dryness in your walk or there seems to be a ceiling that all of your prayers are just bouncing back to you, maybe it's an indication that there's something wrong at home. Because I assure you that our Heavenly Father loves us way too much to let us go about our business, even if it's our business for Him, if things aren't right in our families. And so Peter's point in this whole first section is that if our faith doesn't work at home, then truly it doesn't work anywhere. 
And so he's used this example of the marriage relationship to illustrate the importance of being in subjection to one another in order to maintain that right relationship with the Lord and to keep up that pure testimony before the world. Because you can bet that if people look at us and they see that we have a slack attitude towards our marriage, right, towards our vows and our care and concern for our spouse, right, if we treat that most intimate, precious relationship carelessly, it will immediately destroy our witness. And we need to be so very, very careful of that. And so now watch what Peter does next in this next section. Now he starts to broaden things out just a bit. Now to focus on the family of faith, right? He's going to give us some principles for living peacefully with one another within the church in the midst of this pagan culture that we live in, right? As aliens and as strangers here because we don't fit in with those around us, we need to be submitted to one another within our church family. Look what it says in verses eight and nine. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for revival, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this and that you may inherit a blessing. So in essence, I think Peter's point here is that as pilgrims in a hostile world, we as believers need to stick together because we need each other. So we need to bear with one another. We need to be of one mind, and that is the mind of Christ. Most all of us are willing to have one mind as long as that one mind is our mind, right? <laughs> but that's not at all what we're called to, and that's not the thing that's going to maintain unity within the body of Christ. Our common mind is to be Jesus' mind. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said that we have the mind of Christ, and that's a mind here of compassion and tenderheartedness and courtesy. That's the kind of warm love that we should have amongst the family of God, even when those within the church family might not treat us in that same way. Because we need to maintain our strength in numbers in order to be able to stand strong against everything that the world is bringing against us. Now, even though we as Christians here in this country, we don't face the same kind of intense persecution yet that they were facing here in this letter, or even they're facing today in other places. And yet I personally believe that every single Christian, whatever age, whatever place, Every single Christian who lives faithfully as unto the Lord, no matter where they are in the world, that they pay a private price for doing that. Though we may all suffer in different ways, right? God is not going to raise mature Christians in one part of the world, and then here in this part of the world, we have no hope of having that same kind of a depth in our life. So what the Lord will so often do is sometimes perhaps he'll allow the the spiritual warfare maybe to ratchet up higher, right? Or to allow other things that keep us close to him and growing in him because of the things that we are facing. 
And so we need to look at each other in the body of Christ and realize, look, everything I go through or everything that you go through to stay faithful to the Lord, whether it's alienation within your family or within your peer group or within a neighborhood, right, those misunderstandings or the loss of a job, right, all of these kinds of things that we all, these are the things that we all face, right? Everyone else that walks faithfully with the Lord will face these very same things that we do. And none of us are going to be loved by the world. So where's that love going to come from? It has to come from us loving one another. And so we need to have compassion on one another. Right, Brotherly love, he says, in recognition that we're all part of the same family. We need to look, look out for and really love one another despite our faults. Right? The Lord knows that the bride of Christ, right? all of us as Christians all around the world, the Lord knows we have plenty of spots and blemishes and wrinkles, and yet Jesus still loves his bride. And we need to love one another in the very same way. Being tender-hearted, right? Putting our brothers before ourselves. Not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, right? Not insult for insult or criticism for criticism. Instead, we're to repay blessings for all of these things, right? That's our calling in life. It's to bless people. And it's in doing that that results in a blessed life. Watch the way that Peter continues now. He's about to quote someone who experienced this, right? Someone who lived through some brutal days at the hand of an adversary who was part of the people of God. In verse 10, he starts to quote, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So these words from Psalm 34 were written by David while David was running for his life with Saul the king chasing after him out to kill him. You remember all that, you know, David is fleeing and he's seeking refuge down to the Philistine city of Gath, and then he has to fake insanity, clawing at the gates of the city, just you know, ranting and raving like a lunatic just to escape from the city. And yet even in the midst of all of that, David writes this, keeping his eyes fixed on the Lord and on the blessing that comes to those, look at it says, who turn away from doing evil and to do good instead. He says there in verse 10 that we would love life and see good days. And so here's the recipe for a long life and a good life. Right? How many books have been written on that subject that fill the shelves of the self-help section, right, in every bookstore that we can think of, all on how to have a, a long life and how to have a good life. And here God tells us exactly how to do it. And notice that number one is to control our tongues, right? And the trouble that our tongues can get us into 
And yet, not only do we need to watch our words, we need to control our actions, right? We need to turn from evil, we need to turn toward good. And all of those things add up to becoming a person who pursues peace. Not a person who enjoys peace, a person who pursues peace. I mean, actively works to promote peace and to live in peace within the body or within a home or within a family. You ever notice there's always a certain kind of person who always seems to be looking for a fight with everybody, and yet the best way to live life, David says, is to seek peace. And David did that by being a person of prayer, right? Lifting all of the injustice, lifting all of the persecution, all of these things that were happening to him, he simply lifted them up to the Lord and realized that God does see the situation that I'm in, and not only realize, but then remember that it says there that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And when we remember that, we can leave the judgment with the Lord, we can leave the vengeance with the Lord, we can leave the whole fight with the Lord. David is such a wonderful, I mean, it's a wonderful recipe, and David, I think, is a wonderful example. You look at his life and you see that though he was being unjustly persecuted, literally hunted down by Saul, we see from David's life over and over that he would not lift his hand. He wouldn't even lift his mouth against his enemy because the king was the Lord's anointed. But instead, David returned hatred with kindness. He left the outcome of his situation. He also left the punishment of his persecutors in the hands of the Lord. And there may be some of you you know, in a place when you leave this service this morning, you're going to go home to a place where you are persecuted for your faith, where you are mocked and scorned and all of these other kinds of things. And so these are very important things for you to remember for your life to keep your perspective in the middle of all the difficulty that you're in. Because what Peter is saying is absolutely shocking to the ears of our culture. He's saying that in the midst of self-suffering and difficulty and challenge, don't just try to fix the problem. He says, don't just try to make things easier but instead see how you can do good and how you can seek peace, right? Don't murmur, don't complain, and what you'll find is that you will love life because God will meet you in the midst of your difficulty. And it's with this now that Peter goes on, and I think it seems like he widens up his focus even a bit more from our submission in our homes to our submission to one another in the church family, now he's going to give us some specific instruction, not just about submission, but now about suffering unfairly as a Christian. Right? Not just that we are in the midst of, but now at the hands of a pagan culture, we need to be submitted, he's about to tell us, even in our suffering. He says in verse 13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be 
troubled. Peter says, if you're doing the right thing, no one can harm you, even if they're doing the wrong thing to you, and even if when they do it, he says, there's a blessing that will come to you because of it, right? Doing the right thing has its own reward. A person can have all the money in the world, they can enjoy all of the sin that the world has to offer, but if they're not in the right relationship with God and they're not right in the way that they're treating other people, they are not nearly as rich as the person who barely has two quarters to rub together, and yet they know that in the middle of what they're going through, they know that they are right with God and that they are right with their fellow man. Right? It's a richness in a human life that can't be measured the way that the world measures richness. It isn't talked about that way. But to be rejected by others because we've stood for the truth, but we know that we've been faithful to God, there is an internal reward. Right? There's an eternal re reward that is absolutely priceless. When we can really say that we're living for heaven and we're living for eternity, we have an entirely different perspective on life here and now because we are able to take a lot more things a lot less seriously. Right? If you're living for earth, if you're living for an easy life, you are going to be miserable, I promise you. But if you can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? if you can really live for heaven, you're going to find that although people may hurt you, they can't really harm you because you're blessed. Now, to be blessed in this context doesn't mean to feel delighted. It means to be highly privileged. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And here, echoing Jesus, Peter is saying, look, be happy in your suffering in your difficulty and in your persecution. Why? Because suffering and difficulty and heartache and even tragedy, they help to set our sights on heaven. Right? There's not one of us in this room who like the trials that we have been forced to go through, but also every one of us in this room, when we look back, we can be honest to say that without those trials, and without their work in each of our lives, that we would not be where we are with the Lord today. So whether it's a physical trial or a relational upset or some kind of a career failure or financial or even legal troubles, all of these things are necessary to sever those cords that bind us to this earth. Right? Our, our hearts and our sights need to be set on heaven and on the Lord instead of on those people and on those different situations in our lives that we are afraid of. And that's why, after quoting David earlier, here at the end of that verse 14, Peter's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah 8, chapter 12, pardon me, chapter, 12, chapter 8, verse 12, Whereas Isaiah says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. In the context, Isaiah was encouraging Israel not to focus on the invading Assyrian army that was camped just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. He says, instead, focus on the Lord. 
Peter's talking to a group of people who were indeed facing an invading army as the Roman Empire was moving against Christians. And yet because Peter knew the word, because he was a student of the word, he could draw on this Old Testament illustration to encourage them in their current situation and to remind them that God sees our problems, he hears our cries, and he knows how to deal with those who persecute us for his sake. So rather than fear, we should submit to the suffering, keep our focus on him, don't be afraid of their threats nor be troubled, but watch what he says at the beginning of verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. So instead of succumbing to the fear or resorting to evil or seeking revenge, what we need to do is to allow the persecution to accomplish just one thing in us, and that is that it would cause us to commit to sanctify or to, to set our hearts apart for the Lord even more, right? Even more to Jesus, even more to God. Set our hearts apart even more to his calling upon our lives, even more to our commitment to be obedient to his word. Peter says, if you're gonna let the persecution affect you, then let it affect you in this direction, that when we look at it and when we start to experience it, we can turn to God and we can say, you know what, God? I'm going to commit my life even more fully to you. I'm going to press in more to the things of you as a result of what it is that I'm facing. And then as we do that, in the rest of verse 15, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, don't miss what Peter says here in that last verse. Everybody is going to suffer. Right? This is a fallen world. No one is going to get away from suffering in this world. It's just a matter of whether we're going to suffer for doing good or we're going to suffer for doing evil. If we're going to suffer for doing good, we're going to suffer at the hands of unrighteous, ungodly men. But if I choose to do evil, I may not suffer as much now, but I am going to suffer later at the hands of God. Nobody gets away from suffering. It's just the way the world is until we see that Jesus is gonna come back and make everything 100% right. And so often we can look at things when we're in the midst of persecution and trial and we think, man, this is really hard. It was a lot easier when I was back in the world. Right, the, 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 the Jews cried out, we wanna go back to Egypt, right? At least we had leeks and onions there and yet it's a lie because it's not gonna be any easier. Everybody suffers, but what we have, Peter says, is we have the privilege of being able to suffer for what's right and to know that that's the case so that we can suffer with a clear conscience. You've heard the expression that a clear conscience is a soft pillow. And again, there is something so wonderful 
to be in the midst of a situation where you know that everything that's being said about you is false. Everything that's being directed against you in the form of ungodly persecution, you know that it's 100% wrong, and yet you know that you, in your heart that you're right with God. You know in your heart that you're innocent of all of these charges that are being made against you, and you just sit there in that place and in that confidence, and there is a glorious communion that starts to happen between us and God when we're in that kind of place. It's a communion with the Lord that maybe we don't experience anywhere else in the Christian life where we just know that God is going to bring forth our righteousness at some point. And yet as painful as is all of that stuff when it's going on, the sweetness of what's happening in the sanctuary of our own hearts, it doesn't compare. And when we have that, that's when we have this answer, right? As people are asking us, how in the world are you holding up under all of this? How do you keep your hope in the midst of all of this? And this is just another good thing about going through bad times, is that they give us the opportunity to shine very brightly in what would otherwise be complete darkness. We need to be ready to answer the questions that will come our way because we're handling and bearing up under persecution and trials in a way that nobody else would. To be ready for those questions when, when somebody comes up as they watch us dealing with something in the way that they can just tell looks like Jesus or we're watching, we're dealing with it in the way that it says to in God's word and they'll come up with us and they'll pull us aside privately and they'll say, why did you not return reviling for reviling there? Why didn't you get in that guy's face the way that he just got in your face? How come you don't repay evil for evil? You know, when he did that, why didn't you do this? How come you don't react the way that everybody else reacts in this kind of situation? Because at that point now, it opens up the door for us to tell them exactly why we don't do that. We can tell them about the presence of God within our lives. We can speak to them about the God who's made a real difference and brought about this change within our lives and has given us this hope for our lives. And we can give that answer, Peter says, with meekness and with fear and respect so we don't come across as know-it-alls. But we just come across as what we are, which is one beggar leading another beggar where the bread is. And all of that, Peter says, was accomplished because we had the privilege of suffering for God. And by his grace, then, we were able to tell someone about the goodness of Jesus. Right? No better example than our perfect example. I mean the ultimate example of suffering in the will of God. Because when we're submitted in our suffering... Peter now says in our last few verses that we are like our Savior. Verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So you talk about suffering, though innocent. 
right? Innocent of sin and innocent of wrongdoing. But look what Peter tells us Jesus kept his eye on, right? This higher thing in the midst of the persecution, higher than all of the stuff that was coming against him, Jesus stayed focused on the fact that it was through his suffering that he might bring us to God, right? The just suffering for the unjust. And he committed himself to complete it regardless of the cost. So we can experience persecution in the will of God, but God will always work it together for good, right? We can be put to death in the flesh, but God is all the while making us alive by the Spirit. And this is what Peter is saying. Yet again here, he takes us back to the cross, doesn't he? To remind us that if the Father could take Calvary, the greatest injustice done in the history of mankind, that darkest moment in all of human history, and if he could work that together here to astonishing good, that he can do the very same thing in our lives and in whatever trial that we find ourselves in that he's allowed in his will and that we can trust him to do that for his glory. You know, sometimes that we can sit there and we can think that God's greatest concern every single day is how he can make us comfortable, right? Can't we think that? I mean, we are just that self-centered, aren't we? Now, God promises to take care of us, right? He's faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that we'd be able to bear up under it. But his greatest concern now is to use our lives so that what happened in us coming to know Jesus can now happen in someone else's life. And if that means difficulty, or even if it means suffering, then all that means is that we're just like our Savior. And God is not afraid to have that happen because we know the Bible says that he's making us more and more like our Savior on a daily basis. Again, we too are being put to death in the flesh, but constantly being made alive by the Spirit. And it was by the power of that same Spirit, it says in verses 19 and 20, by whom, so speaking of Jesus, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now, what in the world is Peter saying, and why in the world is he saying it so close to the end of this chapter, right? Well, this is what he's saying, and it's super encouraging, so tune back in with me if you could. We're told that when Noah built the ark, it took about 100 years, during which time he was a testimony of faith in God, right? Because he was warning the people that the flood was coming. But when he finally got into the ark with his family, there were but eight people on the ark. There were only eight people in that ark, right? Because there were only eight people who were all, by the way, within Noah's family, there were only eight people who believed God related to this salvation that he promised that the ark would provide. And everyone else in the world was so wedded to their wickedness that they couldn't be bothered even to get on. 
The days of Noah, the Bible says, was the time of unparalleled wickedness. It says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Kind of sounds like the time that we live in, right? A time when there were only eight people who were interested in walking with God when God finally brought that flood upon the earth. And one of the things that Peter's communicating here is that the whole of the world was wrong. We should never be dismayed by the numbers because we can easily look around and we can start to wonder whether the price that we're paying here, right, could I be wrong? I mean, there's only, you know, eight of us, right, in this whole world. But you can bet that as those floodwaters rose, that not one of those eight who was in the ark, as it started to float there on top of the flood, not one of those eight people considered for a moment that they should jump out of the ark. That they should jump out of that place of salvation and safety. Of course, there's no way that you would do that. And so Peter says, look, no matter how great the persecution gets, no matter how difficult things become, you are in the safe place. No matter how outnumbered you feel, stay in that place that you are in because you are right and everybody else is wrong. Now, people don't like it when we say that. So I'm just going to say it again. Right? God is right and everybody else is wrong if what they believe is contrary to what the word of God says. And we are seeing the floodwaters start to rise even now. And so you just stay in that place of safety. Now, when he talks about Jesus here and he gives us this little glimpse into what Jesus did between the time that he died on the cross and between the time he was resurrected during those three days and those three nights, and we're told here by Peter that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, these spirits likely included all the people who died in that flood at the time of Noah. It would have also included the spirits of all the people who had died before Jesus came, the people who were not looking ahead to the promises of Messiah. Many students believe that it also would include these specific demonic beings who committed especially grievous sins during the time of Noah. It's the ones that Jude speaks about when he says that the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. But when Jesus preached to all of these imprisoned spirits, Right, both of men and of angels who were awaiting judgment there in Hades, what he preached was not the gospel. What he preached was a message of judgment. What he preached was indeed that he was the promised Messiah. Right, that he was the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures who spoke about the Messiah to come. And what Jesus preached was a testimony to the fact that Noah was right and that they were all wrong. 
Noah didn't fear men, he obeyed God, he proclaimed his message, and Noah's reward for keeping that clear conscience in the midst of all of the unjust suffering and the mockery, for keeping his focus on the Lord, his reward was his, the salvation of him and his family who were saved, it says, through water. Right? They were brought safely through that time of the flood, which Peter says next in our final two verses, the flood was not just a literal worldwide catastrophe, but it was also an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. He says in verses 21 and 22 that there is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made, been made subject to him. So, in the Bible, a type is a symbol that's given to us by God to point to something that's higher that's coming in the future, which is the antitype of the type. So, Peter says that Christian baptism is the antitype or the fulfillment that the type of the flood pointed to. And just as the same way that the flood washed away all the former wickedness of the world and provided the world a chance now for the opportunity again to live for God, so too, because of his death and his burial and his resurrection, that Jesus has provided every single person on this planet with another chance to have his sins washed away. He's given us all a fresh opportunity to live for God, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. Right? Baptism for us represents a break with all of our past life. Right? It shows that... that you know, in our own kind of a death, burial, and resurrection from the water, that we've been saved from death, saved from doom, and it all happened because of Jesus. Peter says, not because our bodies are washed clean by water, but because in submitting to Christian baptism, our consciences are clean. Now, understand that for the first century Christian, Baptism was a big deal because it meant that they were publicly following through on their commitment to Christ regardless of what was going to be the consequence. It was like putting a big target on their back for even more persecution and more death, and yet they did it. And Peter says here that it was worth it because that was how they maintained their good, clear conscience. And so you see how we've come full circle now the main point of the passage, Jesus suffered wrongfully, but God honored him. He gave him glory, and he brought something even more glorious out of it. And his will is to do the very same thing as we submit even our own suffering to him. Because we can now live in light of the cross. We can now live in that peace of a clear conscience. No matter what the world does to us, no matter how they might outnumber us, but because we know that we are loved and we are forgiven and we are adopted 
and we are destined for heaven. And Peter says that it was the cross that did all of that for us. Now, in our final few moments together, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. What a great text. What a great time for us to just do that and to remember in light of all that Peter has shown us that the cross has done for us in our lives. To remember, you know, with the, the wafer, the broken body of Jesus and the, the juice, the shed blood of Jesus for us on the cross. To remember not only what he did for us, but it also points ahead and to remember his promises to us that he's coming back for us. Amen? So the worship team is going to come up now and they're going to start to minister uh, and as they do, feel free to make your way up and uh, you can take the elements, you can take them back to your seats, uh, have some time just between you and the Lord, do some business with the Spirit if you need to, uh, and then when you're ready, feel free to take those elements on your own. I say every week, our communion here at Calvary Chapel is an open communion, which simply means you don't have to be a member here to take communion, which is good because we don't even have membership. But if you're part of the body of Christ, if you're a born-again believer who's made that commitment to Jesus, then communion is for you. And if you haven't made that commitment yet, it's not too late. You can still have communion. But there'll be people up here on my right and on my left, and you can come forward, you can pray with them, you can talk to them, and they can help to share with you how you can make that commitment to Christ and start out on that journey uh, with him even this morning. And then you can grab the elements on your way back to your seat and enjoy communion with us as a church family. Amen? Let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and we thank you for all that you've done for us through the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that as we come to the table of communion, even now this morning, Lord, that you would help us to be mindful of those things. Lord, that you re would remind us of those things. Lord, all of the beautiful things that Jesus has done for us, all that's wrapped up in his work on our behalf. Lord, we want to celebrate your son even now this morning. We want to thank you, Lord, in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand together and sing, and as I said, you can come forward and take the elements whenever you want to.